0: Are we doing okay? Some of us? (laughs) I didn't do it. I might have, huh? Okay, so we're in Jeremiah chapter 48. We're in a section of Jeremiah called the Oracle Against the Nations. When we look at Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, all the... I'm pretty sure all the major prophets and some of the minors have a section in their prophecies that is God's oracle against the nations. And each one of those prophetically are talking about, um, primarily the majority of them are talking about God's judgment to the nations around Israel during the exile of Israel. So we need to understand that when God exiles Israel, he judges Israel for their sinfulness, uh, and their idolatry against him. When God does that, he is also simultaneously judging everybody else. So you have, in a sense, a global judgment of exile, destruction, destruction, um, Not total destruction, the Lord says all the way through, uh, with the exception of one we'll talk about when we get to chapter 51. Uh, But you don't have a total destruction, you have like the day of the Lord. God's wrath against the nations come down upon the nations, God's judgment over them for their wickedness. Um, It's funny because we've been talking a lot about a global reset, you know, what's gonna happen uh, nationally, politically. Um, But in essence, God is accomplishing that at the exile of Israel for the world. He judges them all by the hand of Babylon. Babylon becomes uh, the sword of Jehu, if you remember Elijah, the sword of Jehu. Uh, Elijah was given three prophecies at the end of his life. One of them was God was going to use Jehu to be the sword of the Lord and bring his judgment against wickedness. And Jehu accomplishes that. But when Jehu does, Jehu chooses not to follow God. And God says, if you follow me, we'll be, we'll be good. But if you don't, I start you on this path and you go off and do your own thing, I'll judge you too. So those same, those same judge. We see this in the judgment of the nation. So it's not just God saying, you know, you guys are bad and I'm going to get you. But we have another book that we have the same thing happening in. In the New Testament, we have a book called Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the picture of his return in which place we see global judgment, right? Global judgment. God's attention on Israel, just like you have in Jer- far more chapters dealing with Israel than the rest of the world, right? You, you have God's attention on Israel, even in Revelation, But you have a picture, I guess, the oracle of the nations being an illustration or a picture of the final judgment, which will be global. It's not just one place. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. How much belongs to God? All of it. What if the God, for example, of Moab was Chemosh? Chemosh was their God. Who who owned Moab? Moab. Yeah, Yahweh still owned it, right? It's his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You see an event take place in Revelation where an angel comes down, thrusts a banner into the earth, and declares, all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and his anointed one, the Christ. And so you have this proclamation, this God is taking this back. So, in essence, you have the preview of coming events going on throughout the prophets. The vast majority of what the prophets are discussing is the exile. That's the premium focus prophetically in the Old Testament. It's not the only thing, but it's the biggest chunk. And so, and the Oracle of the Nations that comes out of that. So, you have this preview of coming events where God is going to once and for all destroy evil, he's going to put down Babylon because Babylon is a picture of rebellion against God and Jerusalem is a picture of the city that is the city of peace or God's city. Now, that doesn't mean everything that happens in Jerusalem today is good and everything that happens in Babylon is bad. They're illustrations, pictures, right? You get what I'm saying? Babylon is used over and over again to show rebellion, 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 especially when we get to Revelation, And Jerusalem, city of peace, city of peace, city of peace. Even though it's known war more than any other. When the king returns, it'll be a city of peace. But there will be one last war, right? Where once and for all, wickedness is put down. So as we look at the table of nations, I just want you to just be able to back up and and take a bird's eye view that this is, not just dealing with the exile, but this is dealing with uh, the once and future king, Jesus Christ, coming, ruling, and reigning, and all the nations that will submit to his rule. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, that's what, those, that's what those sections are dealing with. So when we talk about Moab, tonight we're going to talk about Moab, chapter 48, one chapter. I didn't think I could pull off two today, so we'll do one chapter, chapter 48, Moab, Today, if you looked on a map, basically Jordan. So where Jordan is today, that's Moab. We remember how Moab got their start. We go all the way back to Genesis, and we see Abraham and Lot divide, right? And Lot goes and sets his tent at Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the five plains. And we know that that ends up being a bad place, right? God's judgment comes upon there. The angels take Lot and his two daughters and drag them out, and they end up settling in a cave. They're, they're, they plead to go to Zoar, and the angel says, okay, we won't destroy Zoar. Zoar was one of the five cities of the plains, uh, but it was a small city, so they say, the angels finally say, okay, we'll let you go there, and then they're afraid to go there, so they go to the cave. You remember the story? Lot gets drunk, And his two daughters say, look, uh, dad's the last man on earth. So we'll get dad drunk and we'll each have a baby and we'll get this earth thing going again. And you have two people groups born from that. The Moabites and the Ammonites. So the Ammonites and the Moabites come from that union. So in a sense, Moabite, Moab, and and Ammon, which, which are traditional enemies of the people of Israel, are cousins of Israel, right? And they come from a fairly dysfunctional family. Now everybody knows that Israel's a dysfunctional family too, right? If we pay any attention to how Israel gets its start, they're very dysfunctional as well. So we look at this, we, we just want to understand. So we have here uh, judgment on Moab. And the point of the judgment on Moab and the nations is God's proclamation that I am God of the whole earth. Not just the God of Israel. It's all mine. And and all wickedness will be given account to, Right? All wickedness, there will be a judgment for all wickedness. So he begins in verse 1. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts. Okay, Yahweh Sabaoth. It means the God of the angel armies. When he's talking about the hosts, he's talking about the heavenly hosts. So this is him describing, he's, he's telling Moab, who's talking to me? Yahweh, the God of the angel armies, the God of Israel. Now, He's, he's emphasizing, when he says, I'm going to judge you, what is he also saying he's the God of? I'm the God of Moab. I'm the God of the Philistines. I'm the God of Egypt. I'm God over it all. This is all mine. So he says, Woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste, and Kyriathame is put to shame. It is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon, they planned disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O oh madmen, shall be brought to silence, and the sword shall pursue you. So he begins with the idea that there's going to be a spoiling of the nations of Moab, or the cities of Moab as well. Just like there was in Israel. Who is the spoiler? The spoiler is Babylon. Babylon is going to face her judgment in chapter 51. So God includes all of them. Remember I told you about Jehu. Jehu was chosen by God to bring his judgment against the wickedness among his people. But he was held accountable for what he did. And especially when he disobeyed disobeyed the Lord. So we're going to see that same thing when we talk about Babylon. So the first thing he talks about, look, you're going to be put to shame. The idea, your reputation is coming down. Moab had a reputation very much like um, the United States. Moab had it easy. A lot of people didn't attack Moab. Moab had a a pretty, uh, uh, a good geographical area that made it difficult to attack. So people just didn't attack Moab. Moab was on a trade route, so they made a lot of money. So people passing by Moab, one way or the other, you know, they're going to go destroy Israel, and the Moabites would laugh, "Hi, ah, Israel, ha, ah, you know, or they'd go over to Egypt or wherever they were going, they're passing by, they're going along that route, and so they're making money. So they have this reputation that they're like, you know, the, the Switzerland, they're, nobody's really uh, kicking in their teeth. And they're doing what they want to do. They they are enjoying great success and relative peace. And the Lord says, I'm going to bring down that reputation. And I'm going to pursue you with the sword. So this judgment is going to continue. It's going to follow them wherever they go. He says in verse 3, a voice, a cry from name." The cry is desolation and great destruction. So the people of Moab crying out. Moab is destroyed and her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luchith they go up weeping. At the descent of Horonim they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. So the judgment coming and the picture that we see throughout the prophets. When the judgment of God comes. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? What is it like to stand before a holy God? Is it different than that? Do we think that the moment... I always hear people say things like, you know, one day I'm going to stand before God and I have a few questions. Yeah, okay. The Bible calls that pride. You're not going to have any questions because... Every time we see judgment, what, how does the Bible describe it? Weeping, gnashing of teeth. The people who have not walked in the fear of the Lord will understand the fear of the Lord because they will see him. They will be before him. Nobody will stand boldly in that place. You never have a story in the Bible where an angel who is a representative, right, a messenger of God who shows up to men where men had questions for the angel. Well, let me just ask you what's going on. Usually they were freaked out. There's one exception. You know who it was? Abraham. Abraham cooked lunch for him and sat down and began to question them about what was going on. You remember the Lord said, shall we hide from Abraham the thing that we're going to do when they were headed to Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham had a discussion. Now, primarily that discussion is with Jesus because the angels get up and they, they go about the business of bringing the judgment in. So the idea, the picture that's being painted, judgment comes and it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does it have to be that way? Because God is a God of mercy and grace even in the Old Testament, right? So there was a provision there in the Old Testament. That provision was repentance and faith. There's a provision in the New Testament. It's more clear because it's not repentance, just random repentance and faith in God's purpose. Now it's repentance and faith in the Messiah, right? The person, the one who has accomplished that work that God has. So there is a path that doesn't require destruction, but there is a day of judgment. Well, is there is there somehow a path where nobody, somebody doesn't have to face that? Look, either you stand in the blood of Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice pays for you, or you stand alone. But somebody's paying. Somebody will have to pay. He says in, in verse 6 as they look at this continual weeping, the suffering of the of the little ones, the children being described. Verse 6 flee, save yourselves. You will be like a juniper in the desert. The idea of a juniper in the desert, it's a Hebrew idiom for finding an isolated place where nobody can find you. If you're running away from Babylon, where do you want to be? I want to be a juniper in the desert. Right? I want to just, every guy who goes hunting to go kill something, what do they want to be? I want to be a sage bush. I'm a sage bush. And that elk comes around the corner and looks at you and you do your best imitation of a sage bush. Or... A tree branch or something because you don't want it to see you right well the good news is the elk is not going to eat you but the babylonians are so the the concept is i i want to be you want to be a juniper in the desert i just want to fade away into the bushes i don't want anybody to find me now the lord says why is this happening look what he says in verse seven For you trusted in your works and your treasures. So why is the judgment coming on Moab? Why is judgment coming on the world? You trusted in your works. God says, I told you that you were full of sin and that I would have to judge that sin and you trusted in your works and your treasure. And your works and your treasure won't save you. On the day of judgment, right? Who, are you going to be able to write God a check then? You stand before the Lord? Well, how about this? If you just write a check to the church every week, does God give you a pass? No, man, there's no pass. Your wealth won't do it and your works don't do it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? So we are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man would. So you can't work yourself into salvation. So he's saying, you're trusting in your works, you're trusting in your treasure, you also shall be taken. Now keep in mind, while judgment is falling on Israel, Moab is laughing at him. Huh? bunch of losers. And here's what God says. God says, while judgment might begin in the house of the Lord. While God may be harsh and judge his people, that doesn't mean anybody else gets a pass. Sometimes it's so easy to see sin on someone else, but the word of God is declaring that there's no one who can stand on the sideline and laugh. We can't stand on the sideline and look at what somebody else has or what somebody else has done. And the Bible says... Uh, uh, Someone who is following God does not rejoice in iniquity. They don't rejoice in sin, nor do they rejoice when another falls. But here you have Moab who was rejoicing, ah, we're so much better than those losers. They trusted in their work and their treasure, and they trusted in Chemosh. Now, Chemosh was their God, and their God had promised to give them all the land. Here's what you need to understand. When we talk about Chemosh or we talk about the Exodus, right, when God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt, God is ultimately judging the gods that the Egyptians worship because their gods are not able to deliver them. Chemosh is the God who told the Moabites that they could have Moab. That's the God of the region. He's given them the land. When God, Yahweh, says, You're going into exile. He's saying, Chimash, he can't, he's not doing anything. He, he can't accomplish anything. And I, for one, think Chimash is probably real. I just don't think he's as powerful as people think. Right? I mean, I think, I think a lot of the false deities people worshipped had a root in, in angelology and demonology and and that's where a lot of that false worship is birthed. They had power, but they're not God. But if, let's, I mean, honestly, if an angel stands in front of you and says to you, I have a new revelation for you, aren't there a lot of people who would take that and run? There were at least two in history that did, right? One's Muhammad. Joseph Smith may be another for sure, right? I think a lot of people would look at their accounts where they are visited by an angel and, and, and think it's all trumped up. I don't think it's trumped up. I think there probably was an angel that came to him. Right? What's, what's, what does the Bible tell us about angels? It says to do what? Test the spirits. How do we test the spirits? By the word of God. Well, the first thing a false spirit will do Right? What is the first thing Satan did? What did he bring into question? Half, God said? Let's turn away from that stuff and hear the new revelation. So, we want to understand that this is, there's power in those things. And God here is saying, listen, Chemosh, this God, shall go into exile with his priests and officials. So the Lord's like, yeah, Chemosh is out too. The destroyer will come upon every city and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish. The plain will be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. So the emphasis here is on who is real and who is not. Who has the power, who does not. Who is the authority, who is not. And the reality is, the Bible says, man knows that, man Understands that, but man in his rebellion doesn't want God, doesn't want Yahweh. Man in his rebellion wants anything that will allow him to do the things he wants to do. Right? The Bible says light came to the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Light came to the darkness and the darkness did not receive it. Light came to the darkness and condemnation comes with it. Why? Because men love the darkness rather than the light. It's not a question of what people know, it's a question of what they love. Man loves his sin. And he'd like to keep it any way he can. So he says, give wings to Moab, for she would fly away, or cities will become a desolation, and no inhabitant in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. So as he's talking about this, he says, look, here's the issue. They trusted in themselves in their abilities, in their wealth. And God says, I'm giving them a full cup of the judgment of God. And so he describes it. Don't hold back. Give it all. And then he says, you will be held accountable, right? For what you don't, don't do the work of the Lord with slackness. Cursed is he who holds back his sword. So that's a word to Babylon. Hey, you go, it's a full cup that God is delivering. But listen, these words are shared to to Babylon. We'll see it in Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51, 1 and 2 says this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, the inhabitants of Lebkammai, and I will send to Babylon winnowers. They will winnow her. They will empty her land, and they shall come against her from every side on the day of trouble. So Babylon held the cannibal too. Babylon is a tool used of God to bring his judgment here. And then God is going to judge Babylon as well. He is the Lord of it all. Verse 11, Moab has been at ease from his youth. So Moab's had an easy life, right? Moab has been at ease and has settled on his dregs he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel nor has he gone into exile so his taste remains in him his scent is not changed so he's talking about the way wine is made so when wine is gathered in its vessels it's left out to settle the dregs settle down to the bottom and then the winemaker would take the jar and gently pour off the top the, the wine that was pure and keep the dregs to the bottom. And he's saying, look, you guys, Moab, you haven't had the dregs poured off. You haven't, you haven't gone through anything that would bring purification. You're not going through any struggles. Nothing's happening. So you're still in the dregs. So when you would drink that wine full of the dregs, you get a big mouth of all the little chunks and pieces that were part of the fermentation process and the developing, developing of the wine, and nobody wants chunky wine. So he's saying, look, this you haven't been poured off. There's been no suffering. You've lived under protection. The impurities haven't been dealt with. And so they're going to go through a time of exile so that the dregs are scraped off. What's being scraped off? Their their trust in things that cannot save. In Revelation, the Lord says it like this. God says, I will shake everything that can be shaken. Why does he do that? Just to be cruel? No, he shakes everything that that can be shaken so you know where the foundation is. Where's the rock that can't be shaken? That's the point, right? We shake, and these things crumble, and oh, I am I pray that Chemesh is gonna deliver me, <clears throat> or I got enough money, I'm just gonna offer the soldiers who show up cash. Whatever things they thought they were gonna get over, all of those are the dregs. Those are all gonna get washed away. None of that's gonna work. So man one more time can have brought to his attention, Yahweh is the God of the universe. And I need to give account. I need to make account with Yahweh. What is it that Yahweh wants of me? You ever think about in the time of Christ where all the God-fearers come from? You heard that phrase, right? People from other nations who had been drawn to Yahweh and so they'd come to the temple to study, to comprehend, to understand. god fears people who who didn't have the oracles of God, they didn't have the scriptures, they didn't have all those other things, yet they were coming. They were responding to, to God's correction from whatever land they were in, and they were coming to Jerusalem, and you see a number of them at the time of Christ, right, when Jesus was going through Israel in his ministry. So he says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will send to him, Moab, pourers who will pour him and empty his vessels and break the jars in pieces, then Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh. So instead of having their trust in this false deity, he says they will be ashamed of him just like Israel was ashamed of Bethel. Bethel, the house of God. All the things Israel had their hope and trust in were misplaced. They were not where they ought to be. In the same way, Moab is going to feel that same way about Shemesh. So the calamity that is coming upon them. Here he writes about the slaughter of the men of war. Verse 14, how do you you say, we are heroes and mighty men of war. So they had this pride. And Moab's like, nobody can take us. Right? You know that every bully on a block says that, right? And if you have ever been the bully on the block, I can tell you one thing. You, you can prove it out in every fight sport that exists. Nobody stays champion for life. Right? Sooner or later, some young upstart shows up and knocks you out or beats you. And so these guys are saying, we're the mighty men, Moab. We're mighty men of war, But the Lord says, the destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up. And the choicest of his young men have gone down to the slaughter. So these men who are fighting against it, they're going to perish. Declares the king, whose name is Yahweh Sabaoth. God of the angel armies. The king. The calamity of Moab is near at hand and his affliction hastens swiftly. Pay day, some day. The Bible talks multiple times about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The day of the Lord. We're looking for and longing for the return of the king, which is the day of the Lord. It's a great day of judgment, right? We've, we've all read Revelation 6 through 19. Yeah, it seems bad, don't it? People have been fighting for the last 2,000 years about what all of it means. But we can all settle on the simple parts, right? It's bad. Wickedness will be destroyed. Righteousness will be upheld. God will deliver the, the Jerusalem. He will deliver Israel. He will deliver the faithful, right? Into his kingdom, and so there, you have this picture, these things being painted out before us. He says, uh, so grieve for him, all you who are around him, all who know his name. Say how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. He's, this is how God is saying people ought to respond uh, when they see judgment. When Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen in Revelation 18. What does it say the people watching do? They are weeping. Now, they're weeping because they can't make any money off of Babylon anymore. But they're weeping, right? Here he's saying, look, all those who are watching grieve for him. Weep for him. How? The mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Dibon, For the destroyer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your stronghold. So city by city by city. He's saying, when you see that city before you fall... Mourn, mourn because the destroyer Babylon is coming for you too. They're going to continue this march, fulfilling the purpose for which God had given her. Now, listen, one of the things the Lord is telling the Moabites in the way He's challenging them to respond to the situation, He says, Come sit in the dust that's a different view than the guy who stands up and says we're the mighty men of war who could beat us right the the Bible talks about this picture between humility and pride and pride, the result of pride is always a rebellion against God and the result of humility is always surrender those are two pretty different aspects right So we see him calling for this attitude uh, among the people. Verse nineteen, he says, "Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitant of Aror. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, What has happened? Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry, weep for the fallen. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste." Judgment has come upon the tableland, upon Holon and Jez, uh, Jezah and Mafath, Oh, these are fun. And Dibon and Ebo and Beth Dib Laphaim and Kirilaphaim and Beth Gamul and Beth Meon and Kiriath and Basra and all the cities of the land of Moab, far and near. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken. Both of those, the arm, And the horn are a symbol of power. You know, when we talk about the Antichrist, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, Daniel writes about ten horns, and a little horn is going to sprout up among them, and he's going to pull out three horns by the root. He's going to take away the power of three of the horns. When he's talking about here, Moab's horn is cut off. Its arm is cut off it is a synonym for the power of Moab will fail. And it also indicates that the source of their pride is going to go down. It's hard to be full of pride when you're the loser, right? It's a lot easier to be prideful when you're the winner. So the horn and arm is going to be broken. 26, make him drunk. Because he magnified himself against the Lord. Here again, why is this? Why is God crushing the pride of Moab? Because he, he magnified himself against the Lord. He trusted in himself, he trusted in his wealth. So that Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he too shall be held in derision. I'm sure none of you ever participated in any abuse of alcohol because we're in church. But for those who did, they may be able to understand this description. Make him drunk so that he will vomit and be held in derision. What's he talking about? The aftermath of a sloppy drunk who got so wasted, somebody threw him in the shower, turned it on, and his vomit is all over him. That's, that's what the Bible is describing. Listen to what he says to them. Verse 27 Was not Israel a derision to you when they faced their judgment? Weren't you mocking them? Was he found among the thieves that whenever you spoke of him, you wagged your head? So anytime they talked about Israel, they talked down about him. Leave the cities and dwell on the rock, O inhabitants of Moab. Be like the dove that nests in the sides of the mouth of the gorge. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. His loftiness, his pride, his arrogance, the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false and his deeds are false. So God is describing this nation in their national attitude of pride and he doesn't like it, right? God's not a big fan of national Pride, I'll say it that way. I'm not sure he's a huge fan of national patriotism, but he is definitely not a fan of national pride. Right? Pride that says we're the best, we're the greatest. Everybody else is lame. We've got it all worked out. He's saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. isn't that what he's describing here?" Hey, you guys pointed at Israel and you said how much better you are than them, but here you are under the same judgment. Where, did all, where's, where has all that pride gotten you? Where has all that pride led you? In Isaiah sixteen six, kind of flowing along the same uh, uh, vein, Isaiah writes, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right, right? There's another prophet in the oracle of the nations given the same kind of decree against Moab for his pride. So verse 31, we see the, the weeping for Moab. Now this is something I think we, we need to look at and consider. So the voice that we're reading is the word of the Lord through Jeremiah about Moab, right? So this is God talking. Listen to what God says. Therefore, I wail for Moab. So while God's bringing judgment, what does Ezekiel declare? The Lord says, I find no joy in the destruction of the wicked. It doesn't please God. Does it satisfy God's wrath, God's justice? Sure, but how does God describe it? I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. For the men of Kir Hadasseth, I mourn. More than for Jazir I weep for you, O vine of Sibma. He's just describing their cities. Your branches passed over the sea, reached to the sea of Jazir. On your summer fruits and your grapes, the destroyer has fallen. Listen to what he's saying. He's talking about their cities and he knows intimate details about their place and what they did and what they grew there because God knows what's going on in all of these places. And the Lord says, I wail for you. That's a wild concept for me. I mourn for you. It doesn't stop God from judging wickedness, right? But it gives us some insight. Verse 33, gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the winepress. God is saying, this is his work. This is what I'm doing. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. He described the shouting. What's the shouting now? Weeping, mourning, sorrow. From the outcry at Heshbon, even to Elaleh, and as far as Jahaz, they utter their voice. From Zoar to Horonim, from Eglath to Shalisha, from the waters of Nimrim also have become desolate. The rivers are become desolate. Joy has been removed the vengeance of the Lord has fallen. And I will bring an end in Moab, declares the Lord. <laughs> Him who offers sacrifice in the high places, so false worship brought down, makes offerings to his God. Therefore, my heart moans for Moab like a flute. It's an interesting way for God to describe his judgment, no? My heart moans like a flute for the man of Kir Hadaseth. Therefore the riches they gained have perished. For every head is shaved, every beard cut off, on all the hands are gashes, around the wrist is sackcloth, on the housetops of Moab, in the squares there's nothing but lamentation. For I have broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. How it is broken, how they wail, how Moab has turned its back in shame. So Moab has become a derision and a horror to all that are around him. So God's describing the destruction of the wicked. But he describes it in a mournful voice, right? In Ezekiel, he said, I would rather that the wicked turn and live, right? That's what he says. I I would I desire. I desire their repentance. God wants to give them life. I know in a small 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 sense, when my kids were little and it was bedtime, it was like you just had to announce the, it was time for beatings, because we would say over and over and over again, okay, guys, we're gonna go to bed at eight o'clock, and that's when it would, it'd all start right. And all the screaming and the carrying on, which ultimately required Dad to... I had all boys, so I don't know if girls are like this, but boys are maniacs. And so I put the boys down, and they always got Dad's belt, Dad's hand, Dad's screaming. The face skin is peeling away from my face. You know, all the inner demons are coming out. All my failures in parenting come out as I scream for my children to go to bed. Not just once. And, and then we would sleep for eight hours. And in the morning, when it's time to get them up for school, I'd start again. I'd walk by and say, time to get up. And I'd always start so happy. Oh, time to get up, guys. Let's get up. Oh, it's like I'm dying. Oh, five I need five more minutes. No, just get up. Just get up. And I'd go hope that they got up and make breakfast right, only to come back and all the yelling and screaming and crying would begin again. 18 years, I did that. So I'm sure you guys were much better parents and you had a cure for it. I never found a cure for it. The cure was my children moved out of the house. And when they moved out of the house, I stopped hollering. I just, now I'm all laid back. My kids call me, dad, I slept in, didn't make it to work today, (laughs) That's a drag, huh? I'm not upset. I did my best. I did all the hollering and whooping. Somehow you always know that's coming. And in a similar way, God is proclaiming to the nations, I am life. Come to me. Come to me. I want to give you life. Turn away from destruction. Turn away from the darkness. Come to me. I want to give you life. All the while knowing you guys are going to sit in the dark and make me get my belt. And the Lord, when he brings that destruction, it's not joy that God describes. as He's, he's using anthropomorphic speech, right? God doesn't have a heart. God, the Bible says the Father is spirit. Well, Jesus has a heart. God doesn't have a heart. The Father doesn't have a heart, but he describes his heart as breaking. Because, he, because we know what that means, right? We understand that language. We understand the emotion that the, that the Lord is tying to it. So verse 40, For thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. The cities will be taken, strongholds seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab shall be in the day like the heart of a woman in birth pains. <coughs> doesn't sound good. I never had birth pains. But I just assume if the heart of the warrior is feeling birth pains, he doesn't want to fight. Although my wife did want to fight while she was giving birth. But she couldn't really do anything. She just used words. Did I tell you guys that story? See, now here I can tell all kind of stories on cat. One time, I don't remember which kid it was. We did uh, Lamaze. Kathy never got anything. We always tried to get her a block or something for birth. But she has this weird thing where she, they would, I always try to tell doctors, but nobody ever believes you when you tell doctors something. They're the ones who know what's going on. So I tell doctors, look, when she has a baby, she goes from four to 10 in one giant transitional, uh, whatever you call them, what do you call them? Labor, pain, whatever. And, uh, and then there will be a baby. And they all would say, we're going to wait till she gets to four, and then we're going to give her the block. And then I would say, I did this three times. The first time, everybody gets a pass because none of us knew what was going on. The next two times, Joe was born in a closet because they couldn't get a bed for her in time. They're running with her. She's at four centimeters, Joe's crown, and she's in a wheelchair. And they find a a bed, they throw up on a bed, and push it in the closet. Literally with brooms and buckets and all that stuff. Literally the closet, and Joe's born in the closet. And the doc, and then right after the baby's born, in comes running the uh, anesthesiologist. Like, dude, you missed it. You missed it every time. But I just know Kathy had mean words. I was t- trying to tell her, breathe, baby, breathe. And she looked up at me and go, your breath is horrible. <laughs> Stop breathing on me. And the nurse didn't even miss a beat. She just hands me a stick of gum. Here you go. I'm like, man. So when it says warriors will be like women in labor, they may be cranky, but they're not fighting. And shouting mean words to the opposing army is not helpful. Probably not going to save you. Anyway. So the point, Moab's going to be destroyed. Verse 43. Terror, pit, a snare before you. O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord, he who flees from the terror <clears throat> will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. So you understand what God's saying. There's no escape from a judgment of God. For I will bring these things on Moab the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, fugitives... Stop without strength, for fire came out of Heshbon, flame from the house of Sihon. It, was, or it has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of tumult. Woe to you, Moab, the people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters in the captivity. So just like Israel, right? Babylon's gonna come, take Moab into captivity. And just like Israel, they get verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. So God's saying it's not a full end, not utter destruction, the end of Moab forever. God says, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore the... It's the exact same thing he says about Israel. When we read Revelation and we come to Revelation and we see um, the result of the 144,000, it says an innumerable multitude from every tribe, nation, and tongue standing together with Jesus Christ, right? All gathered, can't can't be numbered like the sands of the seashore. Those are the remnant to save those who will turn to the Lord. God says, I'll restore your fortunes. This is judgment day for you. Some of your kids are going to make it. There's, a, there's an opportunity for a future. You get what he's saying? So we have to learn from the previous examples of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Because you are up to your neck in one right now. Just in case you didn't know. So you're not up to your neck in the tribulation. You are up to your neck in judgment. If you don't think the United States of America deserves judgment, you are outside your mind. And the Lord said, look, here's how you'll know I'm giving you judgment. I will give you infants to lead you. How would you describe the things going on in the last few years on the political climb? I would describe it as infants everywhere, all of them infants 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 yeah but what's the point the point is there is god's not just going to allow wickedness to fly wickedness will get judged you can't just do whatever you want and everything's okay but do we have a purpose even in our nation even the righteous at the time israel uh was judged Uh, Did they have a purpose for sure they had a purpose did it mean we went through hard times yeah you may go through hard times we have been spoiled, no? In the U.S., have we not been spoiled? Have we not lived a good life for a long time? My whole life has been pretty good life. Yeah, it's been good. I don't know what it's like to go to the store and there not be food. Just recently, maybe, go to the store and there's not toilet paper. But, you know, come on, we make jokes about that. But I can still get bread whenever I want bread. And I can still get this and I can still get that. There will come a day when it won't be that way. And the point is, our trust is not in our works or our wealth. Our trust is in the Lord God Almighty. And whatever he gives us to walk through, he will be our strength to walk through it. Amen? No matter what it is, he'll give us the strength that we need to walk through it and accomplish what he has for us. So he calls his people to be faithful. Be faithful and recognize the things that happened in the past that we might learn from so that we can be ready to do what he has for us now. Whatever the next chapter is. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Preacher went long. Sorry. (coughs) You should have known 47 verses, you were doomed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. Thank you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would open our our eyes to scripture, Lord. Make it come alive. Give us insight. I pray we would have a hunger and a thirst for your word to know it, to understand it, to allow your word to govern us, Lord God, that we might be the men and women you're calling us to be. Because as things in our world decline or whatever things happen, whatever's next on the horizon... May we be, men and women, full of an answer for the reason for the hope that is within us because we have, as our great hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be able to offer that to a world that is ready to tear itself apart. May we have an answer. May we share your truth with whoever wants to hear And may your word accomplish that which is sent to do. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.